The election is over. What happened? Why? And what happens next? We're going to talk about it all. This is the Political Abstract Podcast, episode number eight. Welcome back to the never-ending conversation that is democracy. Well, I have to apologize for weighing in a little bit late here on the election results, but I'm actually kind of glad that I waited because the picture of what happened on election night is very much different now than it was when everybody went to bed uh, that first Tuesday in November. Um, at that point, it looked like Republicans were going to pick up any or Republicans were going to lose anywhere between 30 and 32 seats in the House, and they could gain three or four Senate seats. Well, now we know that Democrats are going to gain anywhere from 37 to 40 seats in the House, and the Senate is locked in. Uh, Republicans will gain a net, uh, uh, have a net gain of two seats there, picking up victories in Indiana, Missouri, Florida, and North Dakota, and losing Arizona and Nevada. So a net gain of two seats. Republicans will have 53 votes in their caucus when the Senate resumes in, or when the new Senate uh, takes takes hold in January. And um, over in the House, uh, losses were steeper than they appeared to be on election night. And that's not about election fraud. So as I've been posting updates about these um, House races being determined and um, the results coming in particular from California, we have had some comments from readers um, reflecting that this might be the result of election fraud. And the reality is these uh, late these races swinging after the fact to Democrats, it, it's just the reality of absentee and mail-in voting and provisional ballots. And um, the fact is, is that Republicans historically vote on Election Day and Democrats vote via other means, whether it's early or mail-in balloting, which uh, there is a lot of in California, which is part of the reason why it's taking so long to finalize the results there. But um, the reality is that when you have a close result like that and you're going to allow, uh, rely on these votes that get tallied after Election Day, um, in a lot of cases, those are going to lean Democratic, especially in Democratic-leaning or Democratic-heavy areas. So it's really no surprise at all that some of those races um, in California went towards the um, towards the Democrats. Uh, it's a little bit surprising that Democrats uh, are going to pick up all six of those Hillary Clinton California districts. But uh, that that's just the situation there is that there is this pool of ballots which does not get totaled on Election Day. And the people who tend to uh, fill, uh, fill, uh, mail in their ballots or vote pr provisionally, um, they tend to lean Democratic. And there's all kinds of demographic and sociological reasons for that that we could talk about. But that's just the reality. It's not election fraud or anything like that. And um, honestly, I think it's uh, we're kind of just spinning our wheels by even really having a conversation about election fraud until there's any sort of evidence of um, wide scale fraud taking place. But um, that's what's happening there. And, and that's why these um, after the fact races are all breaking towards uh, the Democrats. It's really we just had a lot of close House races and um, we've been relying on a lot of absentee ballots um, after the fact in groups that do lean towards the Democratic Party. But I want to talk a little bit about um, what happened, where the Democrats won, uh, particularly in the House uh, on election night. And I broke these uh, groups of House districts down into three pretty basic categories. The first are districts that Hillary Clinton won or districts which swung very hard, um, usually 10 to 20 points I'm talking about, 
from Mitt Romney's margin to Donald Trump's margin. So maybe Clinton didn't win the district, but it could be a place like Georgia 6, which swung 20 points towards a Democrat um, in, uh, in 2016. And the point is, these are places that elected um, conventional, um, if not moderate Republicans in the House in 2016, but clearly swung hard against President Trump. And it was a big question whether they were going to continue to give the benefit of the doubt to those uh, establishment or moderate Republicans, or whether they were going to send a message to President Trump and vote Democrat. And this time, most of those districts did, in fact, vote Democrat. I believe there's only one Clinton 2016 district that still has a Republican uh, congressman. I believe that's Will Hurd down in Texas. I'll have to double check that. But if there's um, not one, there's not many more than that. Um, Democrats did what they need to do in the areas where Hillary Clinton won in 2016, that's for sure. Um, there are about 25 of those seats. Then there are nine uh, seats as of at this point in the Obama-Trump um, category. So these are places that President Trump won in 2016 and that Barack Obama won either in, uh, whether it be in 2012 or 2008. And uh, we're going to talk more in a little bit about why Democrats did so well in those districts. And um, the the good news, I guess, if you want to try to frame this as a from a it could have been a much worse standpoint for Republicans, is that Democrats did not really make a lot of inroads into, um, quote unquote, new territory. So Republican strongholds, places where um, President Trump and Mitt Romney before him both won by five to 10 plus margins. There was not a lot of turnover there. There was some. Uh, there were four districts that I would put into uh, historical GOP strongholds. Uh, Oklahoma 5th, which is one of the last remaining um, Republican districts that can be classified as urban. Uh, that district consists of Oklahoma City and its surrounding suburbs. So that uh, was a surprise to everybody. And uh, that when it fell into Democratic hands. New Mexico 2nd, that was a district that we had talked a little bit about where you had an outsider Democrat running against an establishment Republican in a district that President Trump cover, uh, won very uh, comfortably. Uh, Virginia 2nd, that was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, that's Virginia Beach. That's Scott Taylor's district. And as a veteran, um, and that's a very big uh, military city, that was also a little bit of a surprise. Um, it appeared like Scott Taylor was in good shape according to polls, but that also one of the largest uh, Republican cities in America, um, Virginia Beach, Virginia, has uh, now fallen to the Democrats. And Virginia 7, which was a district that we talked a lot about, that was uh, Dave Bratt's uh, district, very uh, conservative Republican who came in during the Tea Party wave. Uh, he knocked off um, establishment. Uh, he was actually the uh, majority whip, Eric Cantor, if you remember that primary from years ago during the beginning of the Tea Party renaissance. Uh, Dave Bratt was kind of the leading indicator for all of that. Uh, he was knocked off by uh, Abby uh, Spamberger, um, a CIA veteran um, in Virginia 7th, and that is a district uh, which is a suburb of uh, Richmond, Virginia. And that was one that we had talked about and looked at that, that that could be a leading indicator for problems elsewhere for Republicans. Um, we're going to talk a, a lot about why 
the uh, contagion effect really did not spread much further than those couple GOP strongholds. And uh, really, that was all turnout base. Um, but Republicans, if you look at the numbers, it, and it looks like they're going to lose the popular vote by about eight points. By the way, I um, have to give some props to our our um, our pick em predictions. Uh, we had picked 37-seat gain for Democrats in the House and uh, eight-point popular vote margin. And it appears both final numbers are going to be right around there. So um, that's uh, a good job on our part, uh, a solid pick. You know, when you get picks like that, right about that that's really more luck than anything else there were certainly some things that did not happen uh that tuesday night that we uh we anticipated would but uh our predictions both in the range and the pickums look pretty solid the abstract 15 districts it looks like 14 are going to go for democrats one for republicans and this is an area where we actually were wrong i had thought that if democrats made it into double digits that uh, they'd be pushing a 40-seat gain. If you had told me that they were going to get 14 of those districts, then I would have told you that um, we would be looking for something much more historical in nature, um, maybe a 45-seat-plus gain, just because uh, I would have expected to see um, a, a big contagion effect for the types of districts that were in those abstract 15 groups. But they actually more or less turned to be out to be the uh, tipping point for the race um, in terms of whether this was a uh, historically average pickup for Democrats or uh, something close to a wave. And, of course, that's the big question everybody wants to talk about. Was this a wave? Um, it's really a silly debate because our subjective um, number that we put on that, and wave is really a subjective term, um, was 40. And the historical average for um the party out of power in in the White House to pick up is around 30 to 32 seats, depending on how you um, define that average. So uh, I had thought going in, I would consider 40 seats a wave. It looks like Democrats are going to get right there or miss it by a seat. I, I think you could pretty safely call this uh, a wave election um, that could have been much worse. And um, we're going to talk about why it wasn't worse and also why things broke the way they did. So there's two overriding themes as far as I look at the election returns, uh, especially in the House, and we'll talk about the Senate in a little bit. But I would say those two th themes are that demo uh, demographics dominated and partisanship dominated as well. And what I mean by that is the turnout for the midterms was 49.2%, which doesn't sound that impressive until you hear that that is the largest midterm turnout since 1914. So over 100 years since we had nearly 50% of registered voters uh, turn out for, um, for a midterm election. So that that's incredible. And um, even more incredible when you consider that I believe the turnout for the 2014 midterms was around 35%. Usually in recent history, it's been in the 35 to 38% range. And if we got closer to 40, that was a wavier. So what we didn't know with a massive turnout like that was how would that turnout um, be weighted in terms of demographics? Because I don't think there was any pollsters that were accounting for a 49% turnout since that's so historically abnormal. Um, just to give it some added perspective, 
the turnout for the 2016 presidential election was around 60%, which makes that midterm number that much more impressive. Um, so how the polls were was really, uh, or how accurate they were, really was going to depend on how this turnout weighted. Now, typically what happens in presidential years is the electorate tends to be less white, less educated, and um, you tend to get a, a higher percentage and that's because you tend to get a higher percentage of what we would consider to be historically low propensity voters. And I don't mean that term in a derogatory sense. It's just the data bears it out that um, minorities and whites without a college education, they tend to vote less often than college educated whites, uh, particularly affluent whites. And then what happens in midterm years is the um, electorate becomes more white, more college educated, more affluent. Now, historically, that has been good news for Republicans because those are demographics which historically have um, catered well to Republicans. But now we know that college-educated whites, particularly women, are um, are are leaning and in case some cases surging towards the Democrats. So that was always a big question: was if you ended up with this uh, college-educated white turnout. What would that mean for uh, Democratic pickups in the suburbs? And I'm going to give you some numbers here. It's it's a bunch of numbers, but stick with me because this is really important. This is according to the Edison Research Poll. So this is comparing identical exit poll data from 2016 and 18, depending on uh, some other groups that may be looking at the data. And we should get some more um, specific turnout data from groups like Pew Research in the weeks and months ahead. But this is comparing two identical data sets. So 2016, the percentage of the electorate that was white college graduates was 37%. Um, That number went down to 31% in 2018. So the electorate was actually less, consisted of fewer white college graduates. Now, who made up the difference? Was it um, a higher minority turnout? No, it turns out that it was whites without a college degree. And this is really interesting. Whites without a college degree uh, in 2016 accounted for 34% of the electorate. In 2018, according to the Edison Research exit poll, whites without a college degree accounted for 41% of the electorate. So that's pretty remarkable. We went from college graduates, white college graduates having a plus three advantage to having a negative 10 disadvantage in terms of the makeup of the electorate. Um, nine white college graduates went from 13% to 10, and non-white um, voters without a college degree went from 16% to 18. So that's interesting too. Uh, minority voters also saw a little bit of a surge in non-white college graduates, but it was that not that white voter without college degree that really is the core Trump base um, that really showed up for him, and you have to give him credit with all of these rallies and going around the country and hyping up his voters, he got them out. And um, how big of a role did immigration play in that? I guess we'll never know. But what we do know is he created a lot of insight, uh, excited, uh, excitement. And President Trump ex- essentially was able to do what President Obama could not and that was get out his base in a midterm year. And you might be asking yourself, yes, well, the Republicans still lost almost 40 seats in the House, so what difference does that make? Usually, 
the way that wave years are constructed is you have enthusiasm on one side and you have depressed turnout on the other. And that's how you end up with massive gains in um, what you would consider to be unconventional places. Certainly that was the case in 2010 when the Republicans had their wave, uh, Democrats had depressed turnout, President Obama was not able to get the base out, and you saw Republicans pick up 60 seats, and that included uh, areas which historically had been Democratic strongholds. So you saw them advance and capture new territory. Here, you saw Democrats win where it looked like voters were heading in the direction of Democratic, Democratic preference in 2016. They won in places where President Obama had won very recently, so they were clearly not Republican strongholds. Only a couple of those GOP stronghold districts. So if Trump did not get out the base, that 40 number, it could be closer to 50, maybe even higher than that if there was depressed turnout. So even though the night still was a Democratic wave, that base turnout, that Trump voter, that core conservative voter, um, especially in rural areas and exurban areas, uh, that mattered a lot. And they actually made up a historically large amount of the electorate for a midterm year. So Trump and the Republicans get a lot of uh, credit. Um, they were able to create enthusiasm. So essentially what you saw there was everybody turned out for this election in every group. So what that meant was that demographics were really the deciding factor here. So even though whites without a college degree turned out at a very high rate, and I'm sure when we get uh, turnout numbers from group like Pew, uh, we're going to see these numbers bear out in terms of their actual turnout figures. But um, if you're in a district with where 40% of the voters have a college degree, or uh, yes, have a college degree, that's just not going to make a difference. So even if you get a surge among whites without a college degree, it's just not going to be enough to offset the demographic factors. So that's why, despite this surge of the Trump base turning out and voting, uh, you still saw Democrats fairly easily winning in these affluent college uh, districts with a high percentage of college-educated voters, uh, which we've been talking about for months, it seems. Um, just the demographics suggested that in a high-turnout election like that, that um, that was going to be a tough time for Republicans, and that's why they suffered so many losses. But that's also why the big red dam that we were talking about, that's why that held up uh, pretty well. Um, I'm trying to remember the four districts that we gave you. There were two in North Carolina. There was the Kentucky Six. Um, the fourth might have been that one in New Mexico. But three or four of those districts held, and we did not see a lot of these smaller city uh, districts where, um, where, where where you may have a suburban district that still has a fairly rural component. These are usually called exurbs, meaning that they're slightly less, um, they're slightly more sparsely populated than uh, a suburb outside of a large city. That's why you saw a lot of those hold. And um, that that's very important because this could have been much uglier for Republicans without that turnout factor. And, and it raises a lot of questions about what 2016, uh, 2020, apologize, is going to look like. Are we going to get to a 70% turnout since we had 60% in 2016? And what does that look like? Does that mean that turnout among those white non-college grads is off the charts, maybe at a slightly higher rate than white college graduates. We just don't know. 
and that's what makes polling so tricky is um is because it's really it's it's really dependent on who actually shows up on election day and that's difficult to uh to predict and that factor that i just mentioned is why for the most part the polling was good in suburban districts because the polls were reflecting who was actually going to show up the polling was not as good in states like Missouri and Indiana, which showed either a dead heat or maybe even a slight advantage for the Democratic incumbent senators. Um, but those actually ended up being two relatively easy victories for the Republicans, both uh, Josh Hawley and uh, Mike Braun, uh, Josh Hawley in Missouri and Mike Braun in Indiana. And the um, same thing in Florida. You know, Florida... It, the way that went was actually very surprising because I looked to the Tampa region. I, I talked a lot about Hillsborough County. And I thought when I saw the Hillsborough County went for Bill Nelson, that meant that it was going to be a good night for both him and Andrew Gilliam. But what actually ended up happening was for Governor Scott, he had a better performance than expected in Miami-Dade County, which was probably just the result of his name ID and the fact that he has a good track record responding to hurricanes. But turnout figures were off the charts across the Florida panhandle. That's the rural area of Florida where you have a lot of those uh, those diehard Republican, uh, very traditionally conservative type voters. They showed up in large numbers, and that's really what both won uh, the governor's mansion for Ron DeSantis in Florida, as well as um, the Senate seat for Governor Rick Scott. Um, likewise, we saw closer races than expected in Montana and West Virginia. Now, both of those states had very good uh, uh, Democratic incumbents in uh, very strong Republican states. But West Virginia, with Joe Manchin, who polls actually had him up by uh, double digits, he only won by three and a half points. Likewise, uh, the race was much closer than expected in uh, in Montana as well. So there you just see that when you have a situation like that where the Democrat uh, demographics favor a um, a Trump-type voter, uh, more of a rural component inside the state, a lower percentage of college-educated voters, that when you get that base out, you can very easily overperform the polling averages if the polls are assuming um, a more conventional-type turnout. And that's going to be really tricky um, in 2020 as it was in 2016. So what I've saw coming out of this in terms of looking at the polling is that um, pollsters still have trouble um, polling Trump-type voters in these states with a large rural component. And um, that is going to be an issue. I, I think now there's a track record here where... Uh, we can see that these people are coming out for President Trump. And, um, you know, we can see that it, in some cases it may cause the polls to be off by five points or so because, one, you can't predict the turnout. But two, a lot of people that are Trump supporters um, are either hard to reach because they're rural voters, they might live in remote locations, or in a lot of cases uh, they may feel like they don't want to take polls because they feel like they're supporting the establishment media or the establishment in general, which is against President Trump. But let's talk a little bit about the Obama-Trump districts, because 
this is a, a relatively small wedge of districts. I believe there was only about 21 of them in number. And, um, but these were ultimately what determined the fate of the house, which is, is what we had thought all along. And, um, it's hard because in some cases we're talking about, well, demographics are destiny and partisanship matters more than anything. And, um, that is true, but there still are voters that are concentrated in these pockets that have a very swingy mentality. And a lot of these are people that really were not fond of President Trump personally in 2016, but they really did not like Hillary Clinton. They didn't trust her. So they decided to opt for President Trump. That was a change election. Now they've gone back and they voted Democrat because the Democrats did a good job running a lot of moderate um, Democrats who either were moderate on the policy front or just very temperamentally moderate and um, they didn't talk in a lot of uh, fiery tones. They weren't um, talking about a lot of uh, far left talking points in terms of Medicare for all and abolishing ICE and that stuff. It was very even keeled, good government type message. Um, a lot of messaging about um, about fixing the Affordable Care Act not repealing it, keeping protections in place for people with pre-existing conditions. That was a big factor in these races. And that's a big reason, I, I think, why Democrats picked up the seats they needed to, because they were messaging on health care and Republicans kind of had their backs up against the wall because they had an opportunity to do something about health care. They couldn't do it. And um, now Democrats can go on the offensive and... Um, because we never got to see the Republican plan in action, Democrats can run against the hypothetical of that plan. And it's true that the American Health Care Act, it would have weakened some protections for people with pre-existing conditions. It also would have put them into high-risk pools um, that would have been subsidized. So we don't really know how that would have turned out. We don't know if we would have had a lot of people with pre-existing conditions um, that couldn't get coverage. It would have depended on how sufficiently those pools were, were covered. But now Democrats get to run against the hypothetical of that act and say that Republicans tried to weaken or take away protections for people with pre-existing conditions. If you've noticed, you'll see that Republicans have kind of backtracked on that. Now all Republicans are for pre-existing conditions because they realize what an important issue this is. But I really think that health care was the determining factor here. Um, in addition to uh, swing voters' natural inclination to want to put a check on the president. And the big number that shows up there that reveals um, that is President Trump won independent voters by four points in 2016. And here in the midterms, Democrats won ele uh, independent voters by 11 points, a 15-point swing. What I will say is we should really be careful about not looking too deeply into these numbers. And what I mean by that is, even though partisanship clearly matters, so we saw people in Missouri, people in Indiana, uh, Republicans in Florida, they said, we may like our Democratic incumbents, we may think that they're good people and generally do a good job, but the bottom line is we need somebody that's on the same page as the president. Likewise, you saw people that live in affluent, uh, college-educated suburban districts that for years have elected moderate Republicans. People like Leonard Lance, 
and Barbara Comstock, people that are generally seen as good government Republicans that reach across the aisle. And um, voters may generally like those people, but they say, you know what, I don't like President Trump's temperament. We really need to check on the president. And the bottom line is we need somebody from the opposition party to enforce that check. And um, people's partisanship in terms of how they feel about President Trump really determined how they voted for the House and the Senate. But I still think that there's a small slice of, of people in these these Obama-Trump voters um, in these districts that are maybe not undereducated, but they're right around average, maybe 25 to 30% with a college degree. They're a little more working class. And um, what I'll say is this, is that voting for a moderate Democrat for your house is much different than voting for a Democrat for president. And I would be really careful to assume that these swings that we saw are indicative that these people are ready to vote against President Trump in two years. Because I really think at the end of the day, what it's going to come down to is, like 2016, they weren't crazy about Trump. They really didn't like Hillary Clinton. It's going to depend what kind of candidate the Democrats run. If they run somebody that can appeal to centrist, moderate voters that um, like good governments but may ha- gov- governance but may have uh, some conservative tendencies on cultural issues, um, then maybe they can win back these people. Someone like an Amy Klobuchar, maybe a Joe Biden. He's been pulled to the left a lot in recent years, but historically Joe Biden's brand is one that's a little more bipartisan in nature that resonates with working class voters. If they go the Elizabeth Warren route or Kamala Harris or somebody like that, I think they're going to have a a hard time keeping those um, voters in the Republican column. Because remember, these people did vote for President Trump. And um, there there are, if if you're going to nominate somebody from the far left, if you're the Democrats, you're really setting up an identical dynamic from 2016. And I would be really careful to assume that um, that these people are so fed up with President Trump that that they're willing to vote for anyone in the Democratic column. I just don't see it that way. And when I was looking at some of the polls, you know, you talk about a place like New York's 22nd district, which uh, uh, was represented by Claudia Tenney. She was a firm, one of the biggest Trump backers there was. Uh, Eric Trump was up there campaigning for her. And um, she lost, but that was more because of her personal unpopularity and because she was seen as being more of a conservative Republican in a district where healthcare was important and um, and uh, and the Democrat was elected there. But President Trump's approval rating was actually uh, pretty strong. It was right around 50%. And I don't have... Um, the data in front of me, but from when I'm looking at these places, a lot of them, Trump was still in pretty good standing in terms of his approval rating. So just be careful if you're a Democrat and you're assuming that all of these numbers indicate a swing back to the left. I think in a lot of cases, what they indicate is a swing back to um, the sensible middle or center left Democrats, and that there is a market for those types of candidates among Trump voters. Uh, I This is definitely not a call for far left uh, policies. I, I don't see that at all. 
And, you know, with, with that, let's just take a, a quick look ahead to the Democratic House, uh, which uh, I do believe Nancy Pelosi is going to be the next Speaker of the House, and how that lines up for both sides and and how um, Trump and the Republicans and the Democrats will play this. And, and I'll start with uh, the Democratic perspective. I think that the next two years for the Democrat Democrats is, is going to be an epic battle between Nancy Pelosi, who by all definitions is a liberal politician, but she's also a very good politician. So she knows that what she needs to do is to make the Democrats look like the responsible, governing, good governance party for the next two years. And for the same reasons we just talked about, the Democrats need to keep those Obama-Trump voters that swung back to the Democrats, they need to keep them in the Democratic column because President Trump cannot win re-election losing independence by 11 points. I don't care what the turnout is among his base. Nobody can be elected president, in my opinion, losing independence by 11 points. So if Democrats can hold on or even build on that margin by positioning themselves as the responsible governing party, as opposed to President Trump, who's... Um, maybe the, maybe a lot of those voters approve of on cultural issues, but, um, view him to be a little bit more chaotic and, um, and, and temperamentally, um, not necessarily what, what they're looking for. That's where Democrats need to be, but they're going to get a lot of pressure from the far left to, uh, first of all, impeach president Trump. Remember we have the Mueller report coming soon. Um, I think the far left is going to push really hard to start impeachment proceedings, and you're going to see Nancy Pelosi and the uh, more establishment-type Democrats trying to figure out how they're going to maneuver that. So you're going to see uh, this constant fight between um, between Pelosi, House leadership, and left-wing members of the party uh, about what direction they want to go into, and how much they want to work with President Trump. And I think it's telling that off the bat, you're seeing Pelosi talking a lot about finding common ground with the president on issues like infrastructure and reducing the cost of prescription drugs, because there is some conceivable common ground there. But you're also going to get a lot of heat from uh, the left about whether they want to work with President Trump at all or whether they kind of want to position themselves as a hell no caucus that is just morally opposed to President Trump, everything he stands for, and they don't want images of him um, on stage with Democrats at signing ceremonies. But I think for the Democrats, it would be really good, even if these things don't become law, to um, put forth some very sensible legislation where there could be some common ground and be able to use that as a, a platform for going after and maintaining these independent voters that swung in the Democratic direction for the midterms. As for President Trump, I think there's going to be a lot of talk among Republicans about what to do with the suburbs. And long term, that's definitely a sustainability issue for the party. Um, You know, the fact is that um, America is becoming more diverse and um, is becoming more educated and a party cannot stand alone on white, non-college educated voters. So Republicans will have to find a way back into the suburbs. 
I'm really skeptical that they're going to do that during the Trump administration. And the reason why is I do not think that most of the objections to President Trump in the suburbs are on policy matters. Uh, in fact, I think suburbs generally are um, in favor of tax cuts. Um, they tend to vote based on the economy uh, because that affects the value of, of their homes and things like that. And I think they tend to be fiscally conservative and they're not necessarily big social safety net people um, because they're they're not necessarily people that uh, need to benefit from the social safety net. Um, and they're big on uh, having an, a, a strong foreign policy and, and keeping us safe at home. And these are all issues where uh, Republicans have done well in the suburbs uh, because they tend to be um, conservative, pro-Americana, um, temperamentally moderate kind of places. I think what we're seeing in the era of Trump is that the temperamentally moderate part is where Trump is missing with the suburbs. And, you know, I go back to these policies on immigration, you know, whether it's um, building a wall at the Mexico border or um, our, our, our parent separation policies, things like that, what we do about caravans, that... If the Trump policies were coming from a more conventional Republican president, like a Mitt Romney, I think the suburbs would be fine because I think Trump's policies are actually in line with how the suburbs view these issues. And, and they certainly tend to be pro-American on, on cultural issues like um, the national anthem and things like that, and, and very strong on veterans and law enforcement. I mean, these are uh, these are real bread and butter issues in the suburbs, I think. The issue with Trump is it's really a personal matter that a lot of college-educated voters do not trust his intentions and they think that some of these policies may be coming from a place of bigotry or that he's intentionally provocative and um, temperamentally does not purvey a, a sense of security that uh, suburban voters look for in their president. And um, I think what we saw in 2018 is 2016, we definitely saw college-educated women break towards um, Democrats. I think we're starting to see some of their, their husbands come along with them now, and, and that's a pretty dangerous thing for Republicans. So there's going to be a lot of talk about how to win back the suburbs. I, I, I think the personal I issue, unless... President Trump is going to change, and I don't know who seriously think that's going to happen, that he's going to become more of a temperamentally moderate, um, conventional type of president who's a unifier in uh, a time of crisis. You know, he, he kind of is who he is, and I don't think we should expect that at this point. Um, I, I think the best thing for Republicans to do in the suburbs is to hope and pray that the economy keeps going on all cylinders that that's a strong talking point in 2020 and um and really try to push home that positive reagan type messaging about are you better off than you were 4 years ago and i don't think that democrats uh, i don't think republicans can win the suburbs but i think they can at least stop the bleeding and maybe even pull back 
uh, some of those uh, college-educated male voters who maybe are more sensitive to economic issues, especially if the Democrats look like they're going to run on a hard-left platform. But but I really think that um, Trump's personality and his temperament ha- has caused him all kinds of issues in the suburbs with with uh, female college-educated voters, and I, I don't necessarily see that changing. Um, so I would not put a lot of emphasis into winning back the suburbs, but I would change the messages from more of this dark, uh, dystopian type um, messaging about fear and um, and and chaos, and, and put more of a positive spin on things in terms of the state of the country, especially the economy compared to four years ago. Now, all of that entails the economy remaining on all cylinders, and we'll just have to see how you know how how much this economy has left to go in terms of growth. Where I think President Trump really needs to focus is, though, I think he, likewise, he needs to focus on those Obama-Trump voters and what brought them to the table in the first place. Um, That means sticking to the cultural issues, uh, talking about illegal immigration, again, if he can do it in a way that um, does not involve as much fiery rhetoric or vitriol, uh, I think that would be to his benefit, because I think... He can get the message across without crossing some of the lines that maybe were crossed during this campaign with um, his campaign ads and things like that and the possible insinuation that they were racist. I, I, I think he can be tough without crossing that rhetorical line. Um, but I, I think what he really needs to do is get some bipartisan victories um, on policy matters, they're going to play well with independent voters. So I think that's infrastructure. I think that's uh, prescription drug prices. Um, I think maybe even something on immigration if there's a deal there to be had, although I'm, I'm more skeptical on that. But I do think particularly in infrastructure and um, health care, there are deals to be made. And, and if you notice, those are the same things I was talking about Nancy Pelosi gunning for. I think at the end of the day, the president gains more out of having a signing ceremony uh, and on a bipartisan piece of legislation. But I think if you're the Democrats, that's the way you have to play it, too, is you hope you can get these things done. You try to brand yourself as a driving force behind them. And you hope that President Trump is so personally unpopular or maybe the economy takes a little bit of hit that you can capitalize on that and win over those independent voters 2020. Um, my gut feeling, though, is that any type of bipartisan legislation Trump is going to be able to spin as an accomplishment for his administration. And I think that's what those independent voters are looking for. And um, I think he really needs to focus on quality of life issues and um, showing that he's looking at legislation that's going to improve the lives of, of these um, independent, uh, moderate swing voters um, because there may not be many of them in the bigger picture, but they're very important in terms of swinging elections. And uh, that, to me, is the biggest red flag here is the, the dip in independent voters. And that may be sending a little bit of a message that um, they're not thrilled with the way that the first two years of the Trump administration have gone. And I, I think he can win them back, but um, Trump really needs to move to the middle where he can. And Reading the tea leaves, it looks like he wants to do that. It looks like he wants to be a deal maker. Maybe that's a little more comfortable for him than um, having to work with the Republicans. Um, I think he really sees himself, you know, certainly that's how he branded himself as the ultimate deal maker. 
But um, I think that's both parties need to play to the middle and um, Democrats in particular. Um, if the worst thing for them would be if the president can brand them as a far left party, because I don't think that will play well in these moderate segments of the country that we're talking about. But um, all in all, um, some surprises, certainly on election night. Um, some races were um, not as close as we thought they were going to be. Uh, Missouri and Indiana. Uh, Democrats won uh, Arizona, which I think could have 2020 implications. Uh, Nevada, as we predicted, the turnout operation was on point there for Democrats. And uh, Jackie Rosen ended up with a relatively easy victory there. But um, really... Um, Really, I, it'll be interesting to see what the, the reset point here is for the Trump administration and what changes they make and how they try to reposition them, themselves, if they try to reposition themselves. Does Trump double down? Does he think that that's the way to win re-election? Or um, do his political instincts kick in and maybe move towards the middle and try to be a bipartisan deal maker? But um, it, it'll be fascinating to watch um, the next couple of years for sure. And um uh, 2020 cycle is going to get started before you know it. I, I venture to think we're going to have some candidates that are declaring uh, right after the new year. So make sure to stay tuned and we'll be here to talk about it all. Um, it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you and um, corresponding with you on Facebook. And um, this uh, has been uh, absolutely an incredible experience for me to get to know so many of you and hear your feedback. And I appreciate all of your contributions on the site and all of your positive uh, feedback and your words of encouragement and um, we'll keep it going we'll keep talking and um, I'm glad that uh, so many of you are finding this to be uh, a bastion of civility for uh, people from across the spectrum to come and talk about politics because that's really what this all is about and as a favor if you're listening uh, I ask you to go ahead and rate us on your um, podcast um platform of choice give us five stars um leave some comments it really does help people uh, discover the podcast and ultimately the facebook page and if you're new to the political abstract we are editorially conservative but we are dedicated to providing uh, insightful commentary and um truthful information and um really smart um analytical breakdowns of what is going on in Washington. And uh, we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. We hope you enjoy the content. And I look forward to speaking with all of you real soon. Have a great night and uh, talk to you soon.